David Oakes here and welcome to another episode of Trees A Crowd. This episode was recorded back in January, the day after I met Kat Barlow and her Golden Eagles in Scotland and shortly before I met Aina Lee Lamner in Dublin. It was part of an effort to showcase voices from across the British Isles and in looking for a suitable nature enthusiast to speak to in Northern Ireland, there proved to be only one name on the shortlist. You're about to hear from Dara McAnulty, who at the time of talking was 15 years old. He is now 16 as the holder of the RSPB medal, the BBC Springwatch Unsung Wildlife Hero Award, and as of last week, is now a published author. We'll jump straight in as Dara gives me a tour around his home turf in the shadows of the Mountains of Morn. So this is Trees of Crowd, and this is Dara McAnulty. In the depth of the forest and old oak the pride of the greenwood there O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh So where are we? Where is this? So this is Murloc um, and Murloc Nature Reserve It's owned by National Trust uh-huh. and it's a small salt marsh slash beach with forest in the middle <laughs> okay and then um, on the back of it we go, we go could then go up to the Mourne mountains sure so we've got coast salt marsh forest and mountain all within and about a 10 square mile area of itself yes <laughs> it's kind of I, so this is the, I, it's worth saying this is the first time i've ever been to northern ireland really yeah Wow. <laughs> so, A, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but B, also, thank you very much for inviting me over. It's a beautiful place. Here. It's stunning. Yeah. I mean, I arrived in the night time last night, but to sort of get up this morning and see... Well, first of all, the moon was up, which was stunning at about half past seven this morning. Almost yeah. <laughs> and then the sun came up and the view of the mountains over there, the salt marshes oh, yeah. here. And then the drive across this morning. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's not a causeway, is it? It's just a tiny little bridge across to the spit. The way I think the geography of this place works is, is that longshore drift causes sand to go across the bay. Uh-huh. Um, this causes the spit to kind of emerge. And then the Dundra River kind of just cuts it off. Okay. So you have just this long spit of land that just goes out into the bay. And then you have to almost to the left side of that, it's just all salt marsh. Okay. And then, in the mid, and then on the spit of land, it's forest. Does that bring a unique kind of flora and fauna? Like, Yeah, there's quite a few specialised creatures who live here that will struggle living in quite a few other places. Uh-huh. But you can actually see one of the big problems that the National Trust has been facing with this reserve, mm-hmm. and that's that plant down there. It's called sea buckthorn. Okay. And the problem with this plant here is that it just gets everywhere it stops any sort of shrubbery or any new life from emerging underneath it uh-huh. and it just blankets over an entire area is it like a bramble kind of thing like it's balls- a sort of bramble thing we'll probably come down really close to it how do you know that do you look it up in books do you are you told it by fellow botany enthusiasts like how do you know these things i know about the sea buckthorn because the National Trust told me about it, and this is, and this this is like their main priority here. Okay. But I like to read books, uh-huh. lots and lots and lots and lots of books, to try and get information. Then I guess some information also does come from other people. Sure. But for me, it's mostly books. 
Well, I, I guess my, my, my question is slightly a leading question, which is, yeah. like, you're about to be a published author, so you're, yes. <laughs> you're one of uh, the Irish Times's future writers of 2020. Yes. So people are going to be reading your words, you're going to be a source of information, you are, yeah. <laughs> you are now citable in someone's PhD, for example. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your favourite subject at school? Is that a stupid question? I mean, this is another leading question. We were yeah. just touching on it before I pressed record. So, Caroline Lucas has suggested that there should be a natural history GCSE. Yeah. I mean, it's a lovely idea. It's a lovely idea. What do you think about that? Well, when you try to put a new, enti- entirely new subject into a curriculum, it's got you gotta figure out how that's going to affect um the quite delicate balance of fi- of school finances because quite a lot of schools are very much on the line sure when you put in an entirely new curriculum how many schools are actually going to be able to offer it sure um i think it might be slightly almost better if you just amend the curriculum we already have instead of as in a completely new one. Uh-huh. So in- integrate natural history into the other courses into kind it. of thing. Yeah, because at the moment for GCSE, like the biology course is not very good, uh, at least for us. Mm-hmm. And it really um, almost dumbs down biology. Sure. They're almost making biology boring, which is insane it's a hard to me. Thing to do. It's really hard thing to do. <laughs> But that's what they be doing. And I've kind of got this thing about biology. The course is insanely easy, uh-huh. but the questions are insanely hard. What do you mean? Because they ask for exact buzzwords. And if you don't get that exact buzzword, well, then you get it wrong. <laughs> I think every single teacher who listens to this podcast is going, yes, spot on. Yeah. Why, are we get, why are we trying to force people to answer the tick boxes rather than yeah. actually having individual independent thought? Yeah. So you end up having to design answers for every single one of the questions, uh-huh. rem- remembering every single one of the words that you're supposed to use. And if you ever deviate from the what CL wants you to answer then it's wrong. Sure. So, so what's school life like? Are you taking part in the climate strikes that have been going on at the moment? Are you leading the said climate strikes? Like, I've been taking part in the climate strikes and wholeheartedly um, enjoying them, but I've been really trying to push forward um, this. Um, so in my school, we've got an eco-school, eco-group. Uh-huh. And this, is, this eco-group has been allowing us to share knowledge among younger generations who might not have that access to it. Okay. And you mean been, people within the school or people within the school. And it's been incredibly successful. Much to my surprise considering in the first school I went to I said it and they said that they didn't have enough teachers for us. Okay. Um in my next school there was an insurance issue. Uh-huh. And in this new school that I'm going to here, they the, the vice principal has enough time to <laughs> to help run the eco group. So the, te- the teachers are actually running this group for the students? Yeah, they're helping with the group, which is rather insane to think that not a single teacher in the old school could have 
could have made a little bit of extra time and made a little bit of extra time for the eco group. But in this school, the vice principal <laughs> is making extra time. It's so often reported in the press that it's just um, young people refusing to go to school. Um, it's them on their own. But to know that it's actually being supported by the institution that the yeah. supposedly or being reported to be rebelling from is is wonderful to know. Yeah, and when you have teachers getting involved, it almost for the for children especially, it almost validates it. I'd like yeah, no, to say spot on um, because it it gives it makes it say that this is real to them if the teachers are getting involved as well. So how did this start? Like where, why are you this now? Is it just because of this wonderful woman standing behind us? <laughs> or is it because of something magical? Like where did your love of the natural world begin? So I think my love of the natural world began just by picking up feathers in the, go- in the, the garden in Belfast. Uh-huh. Uh, Do you remember what kind of feathers were the first ones? Uh, pigeons, because at Belfast there is a just loads of pigeons. There's lots of pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> do you still yeah. collect feathers? Yes, I still do. Any time I, I see a feather, you pick it up. <laughs> do you have um, a, a pride of the collection? Uh, Jay feather. How beautiful. They are the most amazing feathers. It's that sort of iridescent blue that they kind yeah. of get. And it's, it's also got like this um, almost salmon red brownish salmon brownish mm-hmm. red and it is the most beautiful feather actually there is one feather that beats it okay go on that's the gossock feather oh. <laughs> oddly enough i got the both of those feathers on the exact same day okay so <laughs> we was that were, on this side well, like because you've moved around quite a lot haven't you yeah this one here was in scotland okay and we were sat tagging gossocks and underneath the nest of the gossock was um a feather of a jay, which had quite obviously been eaten by the goshawk. Sure. But there was also a goshawk feather underneath, right beside it. So it was like a win-win. Double victory. <laughs> so whilst every other kid's out there collecting Pokemon, you're collecting goshawk feathers. Yes. <laughs> and something you dropped in there that you were ringing goshawks as well. Yeah, because... Well, how was this? Like, I mean, I would love to ring a <laughs> Yeah, it was the most incredible experience I've ever had. It was in Scotland. And it was all part of this big project called the Hawkeyes Project, uh-huh. which is they're on a training course for a couple of um, raptor officers for the Northern Ireland Raptor Study Group. Mm-hmm. And this project was all about trying to sat tag birds of prey to see where they went. Okay, And that would mean that we could see if any were illegally persecuted mm-hmm. and then instantly be able to chase after them. <laughs> sure and also gain extra information about the species. So, was doing that tagging project what gave you the RSPB medal? Um, I mean, one of many one of many notorious sort of things that have been lauded upon you um, is the <laughs> RSPB medal. You, yeah. Uh, the big issue recently gave you, made you a spokesperson for something or other. I mean, there's so many now you probably can't even remember. I've got it written <laughs> down in my notes. Where are we? Uh, big issue, change maker. Oh, yes. Um, You're the Springwatch unsung hero. Yes. Although that. you're probably a sung hero now. <laughs> I remember that Spring Watch, um, they got me over to, to their reserve where they were filming us. Uh-huh. It was the first time I'd ever been filmed, so I'm really awkward in this. <laughs> but it was, it kind of got me to the point of thinking, 
people like what I'm doing. <laughs> so think because up until that point, I've been kind of just chugging away at my blog, mm -hmm. which I had been writing for about a year and a half at that point, or two years. You started that when you were 13, is that right? 12. 12 okay. <laughs> yeah, the blog started when I was 12. And I've been writing that for about a year or two years by that point. And then when they said, you're um, an unsprung hero, I was just like, what? People are following me, people are reading this thing. Yeah. <laughs> what kind that of things did you put in your blog? Um, it was more like scientific uh -huh. of different species, facts about different species, different places and just writing about all the different things that I saw. And it, was this mostly just a record for yourself? Yeah, it was mostly just a record for myself. And that's how it originally started. It was just me wanting to put words out on the internet. Uh -huh. And Why did you need to share it publicly? I think I shared it publicly because I wanted to, one, um, see if there was anybody else out there. <laughs> uh -huh. And two, I kind of wanted to um, try and possibly um, educate some people because okay. one of my, I think one of the things that I just love doing the most is passing on knowledge, uh -huh. like any sort of knowledge possible. And that knowledge is so in important for everyday life because a little knowledge is incredibly dangerous. Uh -huh. And that's been very much seen at the moment of time with uh, eco-anxiety, where people see the world as collapsing around them, but don't know any of the things that they can do. Uh -huh. And it almost begins to feel like there's no hope left because they don't have any positive knowledge. So almost. what do you think is the single best thing people could do? So my biggest, probably... The advice I give to basically everyone I meet <laughs> is just take the couple of seconds to notice the world around you. Mm -hmm. So notice that little um, beetle crawling across the path. Notice the spider hanging out in the corner of your room. Sure. And just taking that little bit of time to notice is so important because it then means that you can get more connected with the place around you mm -hmm. just by seeing it yeah so and tiny little things add up to one great big thing exactly so. so once you start noticing you start noticing more and more and more and more and more because the more you look the more you see sure and so uh, let's find an example of this great um we're jumping the, into a bramble thicket we've got some yep got some ferns and some bracken yep what do we look so i remember doing this at school you used to get like a square <laughs> meter on the floor Oh yeah, quadrus. Okay, so we've got, so the first thing that you notice is caterpillar holes. Mm -hmm. You already can see signs of life where even if you didn't really see the life in the first place. And always I found that even if you look at the most almost lifeless area, mm -hmm. you still find signs of life. Sure. So if we take a closer look. So you see this the small area and there is so much life in it mm -hmm. even though like it is the most full of life thing in the world but oh, it but still it has life yeah and, and the smaller you look the bigger it gets as yes. in the microscopic organisms the yes. 
um, the fungi and all the different like, lichens. There's so many different species just on this leaf at the moment that we yeah. just can't see. <laughs> and I think this is a big thing in nature that when you start to take that time to kneel down and look at a, a spot for like a, a minute or so, you really do begin to get this connection to nature. And that is, and I think, I think that would be the most amazing thing anybody could do if they're listening to this podcast is just stop, go outside, even if you're in a city and there's just pavement around and just stare at the ground for a little bit Hmm. and just take in all that you see. Because when you take in all of the stuff that you can see, then the world just becomes that much more real. Sure. And when you see that the world is so real and alive, that is um, quite a magical experience. Well, there's one of the things I found troubling about social media, the internet, and the rapidity with which society has grown yeah. is you start to feel a little bit useless because you're confronted with the entirety of human knowledge Yeah, <laughs> and you are just one tiny voice. Now, you have a disproportionately loud voice now, which is wonderful, <laughs> but even still, trying to affect positive change is, is really, really hard. Yeah. Um, which is why it's so wonderful that things are sort of growing for you. So you've got your book coming out relatively soon. Is that... Yep an extension of the blog is that blog entries what, it, what what is your book about so in the beginning it was going to be just um, a collection of refined blog entries uh-huh. um, but then it sort of evolved into a diary <laughs> sure. and it talks about mental health uh, my connection with nature bullying autism uh, more nature uh-huh. <laughs> and everyday life as a teenager I mean, it's it's incredibly honest and open and mm-hmm. touches on some very dark yeah. issues, I guess, with things personal yeah, to you. Yeah, it does. Like, you... Summer was especially hard to write. Consid- like, I went for a real tough period the summer before last, uh-huh. um, when I just moved to here, and everything was just... felt like the entire floor of my world was disappearing. And going back over it, like, I didn't feel, I felt like I was just trying to push through it. And then going back over it, <laughs> I, was go, I, was re, I was just trying to, like, go back into those memories. I was go, and I was feeling to myself, God, I was in a real bad state, wasn't <laughs> I? <laughs> I, was, I was not very good. <laughs> Did you think about maybe not sharing certain things? Did you want to, or, um, is, or do you want to be honest to make people realize that it's it's just a normal person but yeah trying to do something I wanted super to be normal. as honest as possible uh-huh. and make it feel like I am a real person and there is reality to it all and yeah. I also wanted to tie down I wanted to also have in the book some other elements that are probably not so factual uh-huh. but are more how you feel so I there is quite a lot of mythology in the book. Uh-huh. Uh, well, you talk about um, St. Kevin quite a lot. Your, yeah. your second name's Kevin? Uh, or? Third name. Oh, it's third name. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to tell a story of St. Kevin? Yeah, go on. Uh, okay, and so... We might need to move away from the seafront. Like, that probably will be a bit too loud. Yeah. So, the story of St. Kevin kind of goes like this. 
<laughs> I try to recollect all the memories of it. <laughs> um, so, I think Peter was a monk, and he decided to sort of um, become a hermit mm -hmm. and recluse from society. And um, one day, a blackbird um, landed on his hand, and he had an outstretched hand like this. And a blackbird started to make a little nest on his hand. Uh -huh. And he waited there until the blackbird had made its nest and laid its eggs and the eggs had hatched and fledged all, all in his hand. And after this, people started to think that he was, uh, <laughs> it was a miracle. Uh -huh. And um, a massive monastic community grew up around him, sure. which is rather ironic considering that he came to this place trying to get away from people. And just attracted them. Yeah, and it ended up just attracting people. Well, much like the blackbird's nest, you could see the, yeah. the, the, the monks that surrounded him as bits of twigs and leaves and mm -hmm. downy feathers. Mm -hmm. There's an amazing, is it Seamus Heaney poem? Yep. Uh, of Kevin and the Blackbird. Is it Seamus Heaney? Yeah, yeah it's Seamus Heaney, yeah. St. Kevin and the Blackbird by Seamus Heaney. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. The saint is kneeling, arms stretched out inside his cell. But the cell is narrow, so one turned-up palm is out the window, stiff as a crossbeam. When a blackbird lands and lays in it and settles down to nest, Kevin feels the warm eggs, the small breast, the tucked neat head and claws and... Finding himself linked into the network of eternal life is moved to pity. Now he must hold his hand like a branch out in the sun and rain for weeks until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin. Which is he? Self-forgetful? or in agony all the time from the neck on out down through his hurting forearms? Are his fingers sleeping? Does he still feel his knees? Or has the shut-eyed blank of under-earth crept up through him? Is there distance in his head? Alone and mirrored clear in love's deep river, to labour and not to seek reward, he prays. A prayer his body makes entirely. For he has forgotten self. Forgotten bird. And on the river bank. Forgotten the river's name. The book does, um, this maybe. You know what, this isn't a spoiler. You can, no, you can drop a bit. I can drop a bit. I can drop the very end of the book. <laughs> At the end of the book. And everybody goes off to paradise and lives happily ever after. Um, so I end the book in Glendalough. Uh-huh. And coming back, and there's a little tiny statue of St. Keeving with the blackbird. Uh -huh. And I kind of describe it all, hopefully rather beautifully. And Well, the, the opening of the book, you talk about waking up every morning and yes. hearing an individual Black. blackbird sing. So it's sort of yeah. like a book in that sense. But the thing that was fascinating about that was it... Sort of it, it, it sort of was like a sort of coping mechanism for you, a sort yes. of a routine, because you're autistic. Yes, I am autistic, and that was a big thing in the book was um, showing people what um, having autism 
is like for me because I can't exactly say what having autism is like for anybody else because yeah. every single other person with autism has it in a slightly different way. <laughs> is that... I mean, everybody's sort of heard of Gre- Greta Thunberg at the moment. Yeah. And yourself, there's a link between the natural historical world and the autism. Now, that's not yeah. everyone across the mm-hmm. board, but people are starting to draw that parallel. Do you think there's any worth in that? I think it's just that autistic people tend to see a problem uh-huh. and they want it, they want to have it fixed. <laughs> and I think that may be the reason. Sure. I don't think it's that autistic people love nature more. Um, I think it's more that we can, that we see the problems laid out in front of us uh-huh. and we can't understand why people wouldn't want to solve those problems. But I think one of the things that I disagreed with Greta on was that she said that autistic people see things black, black as white, black and white. Uh-huh. And... This then caused um, slight backlashes on me because some people were then going to say, well, why don't you see things black and white? I'm going like, different type of autism. Sure. <laughs> and so I was sort of, I see things in a quite a different way. I, d- I see things as the entire rainbow out in front of me, uh-huh. like in all of these distinct boxes and shades, all of these different sh- shades as a range. And there's always a blurred line. Okay. So when you are trying to deal with environmental issues, there's always going to be two different sides with arguments. But you're going to know that the big businesses are out there to make money. And the way to... I fi- Okay, and this is completely opinion-based. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, what the best things are. Yeah. So I, in my opinion, we can't out-combat big businesses because they're always going to want to, to make money. Sure. There's going to be no road to Damascus moment for them. <laughs> and what we can do instead is come to a sort of way of them trying to be more eco-friendly, but also to allow them to make those profits because... Sadly, in the world that we live in, that's just the way big business be. <laughs> There's big been a lot of talk lately about sort of eco-investors. So yes. uh, environmentalists trying to buy stocks and shares in um, polluting companies and the like in order to try and sort of change their business policy from the inside, um, which is one, I guess, way to try and affect that change. It's a slow one, expensive um, one. So that doesn't really make sense to me. Okay. Because that's just saying... Okay, and can you just have my money, please? <laughs> um, and because, because the way that stocks sort of work, they work almost in secret. Uh-huh. They, all they are is a number sure. to them, to big businesses. And they're not going to be going um, to every single one of their millions of shares and going, oh, an eco person um, invested in me. And so, I, so we should be more eco. So you need it to be public. Um, but you can't really do that among the millions of different shares. Sure. And it's mo- it's you're kind of just sort of tossing money at them and saying, and when you have higher shares for a company, that shows confidence in the company. Sure. And confidence in the company means that they're going to continue doing what they're doing. Sure. <laughs> so what would be the tactical um, 
So yeah, what do you think he should do then? The tactical stock would be to do, would be to support in in share. If you're going to be doing this eco investing, um, put your shares into <laughs> into the business that's that has an eco strategy and it's directly opposing to that other company. Because the way that they'll see it is, oh dear, this company is applying eco yeah. standards and, and they're rising. Yeah. So we should probably. Uh, so that means that if we put eco standards in for us, we're going to begin rising as well. Sure. And when you put it in this way, it shows that it tells the businesses that they can increase profits by going environmental. Sure. So you can. So this, in this sort of way, you can sort of secretly um, sort of influence their decisions uh-huh. by putting them under pressure from other companies okay and because there's nothing a business is more afraid of and that's competition, competition. <laughs> do you find that as um, someone on social media with a huge amount of presence with a lot of mm-hmm. people your age looking up to you do you feel like you have to compete with the likes of Greta and other environmentalists or is it a big happy community um, of activists so I had very recently like this week had been um, trolled on my WordPress for not going to enough climate strikes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so apparently, apparently it's quantity, not quality. Yeah. So apparently, I um, I used to be out in the effing streets, not writing pretty language. Sure. What's that going to do? Uh, and you left uh, social media for a bit last year as well, didn't you? Yeah. Like, social media can be really oppressive at times. Uh-huh. It allows you to get your voice out there, but. It can really hurt you mentally at times. Yeah, definitely. And I don't really want to compete with anybody. I've kind of found my own little niche of nature writing and activism through words Mm -hmm. more than... I mean, um, it's beautiful. The kind of language you use, I mean, you you refer to yourself as comfortable as a raven and your family (laughs) being as close as an otter. And it's, it's such wonderful language that you've got at your disposal. It does seem like a unique way in which you are... Mm -hmm expressing yourself for the betterment of humanity and for the planet yeah i read on twitter that you're currently working on a second book even before the f- first one's even oh published. yeah <laughs> so it's going to be a picture book uh-huh uh pictures children book about a child's seeing creatures in nature but it's all going to be coming from a sort of childish point of view sure where they're not seeing a blackbird as a blackbird they're seeing it as a bird with black feathers orange beak Glossy, glossy feathers. And so the descriptive terms descriptive rather than scientific than or taxonomical kind of. Yes. Yeah. And because that's how a child sees the world, and I really wanted to get that. Is that how you the saw book. the world when you were growing up? I think that's how everybody sees the world sure. when they're growing up. Everybody, because when you're really, really young, you don't know the names of creatures or plants. Uh-huh. All you know is what they look like. Yeah. And. You know, that, um, that stings, don't touch that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, um, that bird has beautiful colours of um, red, um, yellow, white, black, a ruby, ruby face, uh-huh. um, um, gold gilded wings. And can you guess the bird I'm talking about here? Um, I d- I, all I had in white my eyes... White speckled tail. Okay, I'm sort black, of going more... Black and white speckled tail. We're going with pheasant here? No, it was a goldfinch. The golf- oh, okay. Start uh, with size. Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, 
Um, so I was, in my head, I was going, okay, so that's not a red cardinal. I got rid of that one. <laughs> so all the bird species are going to be that you can find in your gar- sure. garden. So I've kind of split it up into... There was, Actually, I, I feel like I'm starting to reveal too much. No, what? Well, no, I mean, you, not at all, because everyone's now going, I want to read that. I want to buy that for my kids. Yeah. I was <laughs> sitting in a cafe, um, where was I, uh, at Loch Glen Trool the other day, and yeah. there was a father and what must have been his four-year-old son sitting at this window. Yeah. And outside the window, there was a bird table, and uh, stuck next to the window were loads of different bird identifiers. So there was... Yeah. Um, what was that? There was a coal tit, great tit, yeah. uh, chaffinch, robin, all the usuals. But there was this four-year-old kid just going, Daddy, that's a coal tit, coal tit. And for the duration of my cup of tea, I was listening to this wonderful kid, wholly <laughs> enthused by these birds. It was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And When they left, I took their seat and started spotting myself. <laughs> and I think this just shows that child's innate love of nature, because when you're born, in my opinion, People do um, have that connection to nature uh-huh. from the moment they're born. And it's society sort of uh, oppressing that in numerous different ways. Um, that could be a parent saying um, to a child not to pick up the dirty feather. Uh-huh. And I've always said, um, I've picked up so many feathers in my life, and I'm not dead yet. So there mustn't be, there can't be anything wrong with them. I hope in the the time it takes me to edit this, you don't pick up a highly poisonous feather. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are three questions that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, the first one is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, okay. and if you say the mountains of Morn, just because we've come over this peninsula and we can see them staring at us, I won't allow it. <laughs> um. Now I'm staring at the morns now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love to go to... Because I, I love nature in all its forms, mm-hmm. this is really hard. <laughs> um, I love to walk in the Galapagos Islands, uh-huh. but only as a scientist, because I... Don't want to be a tourist. I don't want to be a tourist like that. I want to be doing something there, positive. <laughs> Do you but, think you'll become a scientist? Um, most Are likely. you already a scientist? Well, technically not, but I think that um, if you love researching things, finding stuff out about the world around you, then you're a scientist at heart, Uh just not a name yet. Sure. And so I think I would consider myself a a scientist at heart. (laughs) Do you know where you want to go to university or anything like that yet? I've always been kind of thinking about Cambridge because they've got the most amazing natural history course. Uh So... (laughs) um, um, they've got this natural sciences course, which allows me to um, do basically everything. Uh-huh. Where, because I love science all in general. Sure. From physics to biology. <laughs> well, like, the, the term that keeps popping up in this podcast is the, an holistic approach to, to science and how everything feeds into everything else and that you can't look at anything in uh, yeah. on its own in isolation. Yeah. Everything is interconnected, no matter what. Oh, when you look at it, everything has a connection to everything else. Be it because if you, for example, in Yellowstone, um, they um, brought back the wolves into um, Yellowstone, and the entire ecosystem instantly changed. The entire landscape changed. Sure. Trees became there was less sprawling shrubbery, which allowed for more. Um, grasses to come up which then led to 
I'm taller, more mature trees, uh -huh. but with um, less um, competition. And it completely changed the entire ecosystem and put everything mostly back into balance sure. in that area. And is that, is that somewhere you'd like to go to Yellowstone? Oh yeah, I'd love to go to Yellowstone as well. <laughs> the American national parks are incredible. They are. Um, they're just they're wild so in a way that our national parks aren't quite. Yeah. Do you have a hero? Is there a natural historian or, or you, anyone? Is there anyone you look up to particularly who's inspired you? Well, I guess the way I've kind of went forward is that There's I don't... a mussel shell this far from... Oh, yes. We mussel might... shells. We're so, a good couple of hundred metres away from the sea. So what, what happens here is the seagulls, <laughs> they love mussels. And so they've learned how to um, take the mussels in their beaks, fly them over to a patch of hard, compacted soil or stones, and then drop them. Okay. And then... <laughs> and then eat the insides. And then, and then eat, eat the insides. <laughs> um, yes, natural history hero. Natural anything. history hero. So I think it's been sort of like um, a collection of lots of different people. Uh -huh. So people like Chris Packham, um, David Attenborough, um, just I think that I never wanted to have a sort of role model because I really wanted to be myself. Uh -huh. But. I think just seeing all of these influential people um, who love wildlife gave me that an inspiration to keep to keep on going. And it's definitely people that are involved in actively presenting it to the world. So Chris yeah. and David are both there as presenters of television, yeah. writers of books, uh, producers of their own content, and yeah. as well as being naturalists and environmentalists, they're yeah. me media people. Yeah, I think that that's mostly I think most people will will feel more inspired by people in the media because you see them all the time sure and being I think that, that exposure to those people it elevates them a bit doesn't it <laughs> and I think it gets nature into people's minds sure it makes it's like I remember when planet earth was on um planet earth 2 <laughs> and lots of people were talking about it yeah. And it got nature onto people's, into the front of people's minds. Yeah. And I think that's just so important. Well, nature's not going anywhere. People aren't going anywhere. It's yep. just making the two be aware of each other properly. Exactly. Or is people aware of the natural world? Yes. Um, second question we ask everyone is, should we colonise the moon? So the way that this sort of works is I would... So if we colonise the moon, there's going to be... In general, one reason for it. Mm -hmm. The moon is a big ball of metal <laughs> and rock, so people are going to want to mine us. Uh -huh. And in my head, I'm going, okay, and so if humans are always going to need resources, no matter what happens, we're going to need some sort of... We're going to need something to build out of. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm going, well, I'd rather they took those resources from the moon than polluting the earth. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Because we're all, it's the sad truth about humanity is that we are physical <laughs> and we're going to need homes to live in. Um, technology is becoming a massive part of our lives uh -huh. at the moment. So we're going to be needing a lot more trace metals, which will come from a lot of, quite a lot of um, poorer con countries' mines, uh -huh. mines under terrible conditions yeah. with, um, 
low distribution of the wealth. A lot of people I've been speaking to think that in the upcoming decades, Africa is going to be hit very hard by industrial greed um, because it's so rich in resources. Mm-hmm. Think about it. If you actually did colonize the moon, that resource pressure would actually be taken off Africa. So you think it's a good thing? I think, I think it would be a good, a good thing because from a pragmatic point of view, the world, I would rather leave the world alone, sure. our world alone. I'd rather okay, let how, it, how about I'd rather we, let nature thrive. We take all humanity off the planet and we all live on the moon and look at it. Mm, no. And except for the scientists who get to visit it. <laughs> I think that the earth is just so beautiful that I just can't I just yeah. can't stomach exploiting the, the earth the earth. I completely hear you. And when we exploit the earth, carbon dioxide is spewed up into the atmosphere, um, cooking the <laughs> cooking the planet. But in the moon, um, there's all the Martians can <laughs> find another place to live. Because all in the moon, Lunians. I've been this. I've taken a lot of thought to this topic. <laughs> um, so in the moon, we uh, I've been thinking. Okay, and if we mine the moon, what are the possible repercussions that we could have? Uh-huh. So. The tides? Um, if you change the mass of the moon, will the tides be affected in the same way? Um, you'd have to... I, I'm trying to work out the mass of this, but I think you'd have to remove about um, a lot of the moon. <laughs> could you displace it? Could you, take, could you take the useful metals out of the moon and replace it with uh, rubbish from human civilizations? Uh, so mass displacement. We, we, there, there's a bit in... Uh, there's a bit in... Um, one of the Douglas Adams books, one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah. where they have to go to a planet mm-hmm. uh, which is beautiful, perfect, absolutely wonderful natural yeah. history. Yes. But it's so it's in such fine balance that he says you have to get a receipt every time you go to the loo because you have to be accountable for all the mass you take onto the planet and all the mass you take off. It needs to be the same. So <laughs> if you don't have a receipt for going to the toilet, uh, it will be surgically removed from your body when you depart. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, if you haven't gone into the Hitchhiker's Guide universe yet, that, that was yeah, probably the single us. best part of my, my life. <laughs> um, okay, final, final question. If uh, you could bring back any species from extinction, what would it be? Okay, so I think now, always bringing back species, you never know what will happen. Um, because in Germany, um, this man, um, he bred back orcs. Uh-huh. Um, so these massive um, ancient cows where all cows come from and as soon as he brought them back they nearly killed him and, they, and then they stampeded across the countryside and nearly killing loads and loads of people uh-huh. and they realised that they can't actually exist in this world anymore sure. they had their time yeah because like when you are bringing back an animal that has been extinct for millennia, for like, for a long, long, long time, that's very much affected the ecosystem that I lived in. Uh-huh. Then you don't know what will happen sure. <laughs> because creatures can be unpredictable, <laughs> and that's the thi- thing about nature. It's got so many different possibilities. Uh-huh. So, if I was to bring back an animal, I'd think I would bring back, I bring back the Bengal tiger. Okay. Because the the ecosystem still hasn't changed 
as much because of its absence mm -hmm. and it can still come back into nature and still thrive as it used to uh -huh. uh, without um, those repercussions that could possibly happen after even a, a hundred or so years without careful management of everything that's that's happened sure. <laughs> and seeing exactly what might happen through extensive research which could also always have a mistake in it. <laughs> so I would say that I would bring back the Bengal tiger. Okay, perfect. Because I wasn't even sure the Bengal tiger was extinct. I think it did go extinct. Like This is tragic. Like, Didn't the Bengal tiger go extinct? I think there's a few left. Are they just in captivity or is it one of those... I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. They're so... Really um, about, Dara. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is cruel. I, I have to be like No, that. but like the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the red list of animals disappearing is yeah. so... There are so many things on it that are just disappearing and we don't notice. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so tragic is... Yeah. Before you know what it is, like, it's gone and... I think if we were to bring back any sort of species, it would need to be a, a species that humans have removed. Sure. Because if we're bringing back a species that went extinct through almost natural causes, there's most likely a trigger that most likely yeah. caused that to happen. Whether so it's it, hunting or deforestation um, or... So if it's human that caused that, um, then there's, I think there's more of a chance that you could bring it back to, for some safety. Sure. <laughs> and the thing is, is that when you uh, animal goes extinct, loads of other animals go extinct with it. And that all of those animals need to be with each other. It's it's keystone to, species. You pick, yeah. you, you destroy the wrong one, and the repercussions might be endless. Yeah, I and mean, that this, causes, this is the question that stumps everybody. So don't worry. And then this causes loads of other people, uh, loads of other species to go to, to go extinct. But then you can't bring back the species before without those species that went extinct in the first place. Okay, let let me make the question simpler. If you just for the sake of seeing it roaming in its natural environment, is there an animal that you would just like to see for your own personal sake? No one else need know about it. Um, giant hawk. Giant hawk. Perfect. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. Much Thank appreciated. you. Bye. A massive thank you to Dara for his time that chilly January morning and for providing fascinating perspectives upon familiar subjects which I hadn't considered before. As wildlife photographer David Fetters, a previous guest to this podcast, said to me, we do not inherit the land from our ancestors, we borrow it from our dependents. With that in mind, we should heed every ounce of what Dara has to say. You can follow Dara on Twitter at NaturalistDara and on Instagram at Dara underscore McAnulty. But perhaps most excitingly, his book Diary of a Young Naturalist is out now and available to order through all great independent local bookshops, as well as all the usual other places. Thank you too must go to Dara's mum Rasheen and to Gracie at Little Toller for helping me set up this interview and to Eleanor Lawless for giving us a healthy dose of Seamus Heaney. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a review on whichever podcast platform you prefer. We'll be back in a week with a little bonus episode, but until then, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy um, can you cut out all that about um, um, just at the, v just before the giant hawk? Like just <laughs> you can just kind of say, I'd love to see the giant hawk. Yeah, just just cut it. I'd love to see the giant hawk. Oh, is it really a dog voice?